week on a lively experiment. There's a new playbook for voting during a pandemic. We'll tell you how Rhode Islanders made out during this week's primary. And the on-again, off-again relationship between Lifespan and Care New England appears to be back on again. But will they actually make it to the altar this time? A lively experiment is generously underwritten by For more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen-White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS. Joining us with their analysis, Jim Vincent, president of the Providence branch of the NAACP, corporate communications consultant Dave Lehman, and Sun Chronicle columnist Donna Perry. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Hummel. It is great to have you with us. Well, this week's primary election was a warm-up for the big event in November, as just over half of the 86,000 people in Rhode Island who cast ballots did so at the polls. The rest, of course, took out mail ballots or the new early voting. And there were some upsets as several prominent lawmakers are either on the ropes or have lost their elections. We'll get to all of that in a second. Jim Vincent, let me begin with you. Just curious about, there was a lot of trepidation going into this. What's, what are some of your takeaways from primary day? Well, um, I would have thought that on primary day, we would probably have a low turnout given the, the pandemic. Originally, I was thinking that, but I think with early voting and mail ballots, I think that we're going to have a record uh, even exceeding the 2012 election, which was a presidential year. So, you know, who, who knew? So I think that um, it, it was just great the fact that, you know, people decided to participate in the numbers that they did. And again, you know, there were some uh, upsets, but I think you have some grassroots organizations that really did their job and they did it well. Yeah, we'll get to the, the specifics in a second. Dave, in terms of process, there was concern Mail ballots, st- we're taping this on a Thursday morning. Uh, there's still going to be some races decided. I know this is going to be multiplied in November, but it seemed to go, at least in Rhode Island, fairly smoothly. Yeah, from what we've been able to tell, it has. I, I think what the electorate and uh, the voters probably need to get used to, especially for the general election, is that uh, the night of the election, where people declare victory is probably not going to happen this year, except in very few races where there's a runaway. Uh, in Rhode Island, for example, they're still counting. As we are recording this, they are still record are still uh, tally, uh, uh, ta- uh, tabulating. Pardon me, tabulating something like thirty to thirty-three thousand mail-in ballots. And so, uh, some of the results will be evident by the time this program airs over the weekend. But at the same time, I think we are all going to need to be very patient because I think the general election with mail-in ballots, some are expecting half the ballots to be mailed in. With the Postal Service having its problems, I think we're going to have to be very patient. And we may not know the winners in some of these races for a week, two weeks, maybe three weeks. Yeah, Dave, the um, the Senate President Ruggiero was very circumspect. I think he's confident, but he said, look, I want to respect the process. Unlike Nick Mattiello, you remember a couple of years ago, he was down 85 votes and declared victory because he said he knew about the mail ballot. So I think the Senate President and the, the leadership got a little bit of a scare. But again, you never know until the last ballot is counted. Donna? Yeah, I I would agree. And I would agree with um, Dave's observations, too, that I think um, whether it's the candidacies, the campaigns and the media, they're going to have to really sort of proceed maybe a little more carefully, certainly for the general, because it's obvious that the role that the 
you know, the mail-in ballots are going um, to play. And, and again, I do think when you're talking about um, incumbents, they are very attuned to getting their voters out. And if they worked hard with people who are probably in the mail-in ballots, uh, whether it looks like incumbents are having a close race and that could end up being, you know, maybe not so close. So I, I just think that's going to have to you know, everyone's going to have to be a lot more patient and really wait to be projecting trends until it's really more clear. Patrick Anderson had a great piece in today's journal, several takeaways from the primary. One was they thought that the the um, pandemic was going to help the uh, incumbents because a lot of people weren't going to get out. And so I think what happened in a lot of these grassroots groups found uh, creative ways to get out. Jim, one of the two of the biggest upsets, I think, were Senator William Connolly, Senate Finance Chairman in East Providence. He's kind of enmeshed in this whole. He's the lawyer for uh, developers of Metacomet. They it showed that the grassroots got out. The one surprise I had was Harold Metz, longtime senator. He's been at the General Assembly for a long time, and it looks like his young progressive challenger. At this taping, it looks like she's going to be prevail. We'll have to see how it goes. Did that surprise you with with uh, Senator Metz? Actually, that did surprise me. Uh, Senator Metz, uh, who's a friend, uh, who's, I think, done a great job in his years in the legislature, um, just ran into somebody that really, really wanted it badly and had a great campaign. Uh, I've met Tiara Mack, and uh, she's a Brown graduate. She's really articulate. She's very uh, energetic. And uh, so she really wanted it. And uh, I guess that's what happens when uh, you have an opponent that really is determined. Dave, what about this progressive wing that has begun? You know, Matt Brown formed the Rhode Island Political Co-op. Uh, I know Mara Walsh lost, but it seemed like some of the progressives went in. Their target was to go after some of these longtime reps and senators, and they had some success this year. Who would have thought that uh, Dominic Ruggiero would be uh, concerned about his reelection as a Senate president and long-serving, I think, legislator on Capitol, on the, uh, the State House? Uh, who would have thought that, well, we know that, uh, that there was probably going to be some close uh, calls for, uh, for the House Speaker. Um, I think like with Conley, uh, I think his big mistake was he violated the, the old axiom that some of us might remember as we were growing up, don't fish off the company pier, because it means that you don't want to be taking advantage of people who are hiring you or supporting you. And I think he made a big mistake, and we'll see how it turns out because that's still not a, a concluded election yet. But I think he made a big mistake by being the attorney for the developer for Metacoma Country Club and knowing that there was going to be a lot of backlash in that community. That's something you don't normally welcome if you're a candidate. Uh, sure, it, it probably was something that he wanted to do because he thought maybe he could add some control to the process on the developers. And so the project would be good for East Providence because he's been a fixture in East Providence and in, in, in state government for a long, long time. I'm just surprised that he made that, I think, a mistake by getting involved in this controversy by being the attorney for the people who want to turn this huge green space into a big complex that a lot of people don't want in East Providence. Donna, you are our Massachusetts correspondent. Tell us, you know, your primary was a week ago. The whole focus was on Markey and Kennedy. Were you surprised that Markey won so handily? You know, I, I think that really is an earthquake and a wake up for Massachusetts, because um, I do think to see, uh, I mean, Markey by now is a 74 year old who wasn't always considered, you know, just like a total progressive far leftist. But 
to his credit, I think he saw early on to knock off a Kennedy, and that is historic, um, that he needed to partner with um, really the progressive wing. And I think the, the AOC, Alexandria you know, Ocasio-Cortez, I mean, joining forces with him, I think that was a turning point for him. Um, also, it shows the power of a very progressive, they're uh, like climate activists, the Sunrise Movement. They have a chapter in Rhode Island, but they're very, very active in Massachusetts. They supposedly really did a lot of uh, get out the vote on the ground work for Markey. So I would also note, I just think that the progressives ability to do, you know, very aggressive, you know, social media uh, messaging and vote chasing, I would say should be kind of, um, you know, that's sort of an alert for everybody going forward. Um, whether that's ultimately translates to Team Biden, and I wonder how, you know, they have a lot, a lot of energy in that wing. And the fact that Markey was able to capture that, um, some of the pandemic, they, they believe, really did hurt Kennedy in this way. The old line centrist Democratic, you know, politicking that the Kennedys do and had no peer for that, obviously, where they would go to the firehouse in person and then they have captured the vote and they could go to the senior centers, all those kinds of things, you know, um, Joe Kennedy could not do in during this period. So there's a lot of, um, I think it's true, and there's a lot of reporting that that, that really hurt Kennedy. Um, and that also maybe, you know, um, is Camelot, you know, that the, the glamour has really faded um, as this new generation has come up, I don't think Kennedy's mean to the newest generation, certainly what they did for, you know, people of, of different ages. So, uh, but Marky, that is a remarkable to rebrand yourself at age 74 um, mm. with this very young dynamic wing. And that's what he pulled off. Yeah. Okay. Well, to be continued, we have a little less than eight weeks left. It's hard to believe till the general election going to be an interesting season. Now, stop me if you've heard this one before. Two major hospital groups in Rhode Island decide to get together. Oh, wait a minute. Then it's off, it's on, it's off, it's on. So we hear on late on Wednesday that Lifespan and Care New England, again with a partnership with Brown University, the backdrop for this is you remember that Partners Health in Massachusetts, uh, Mass General, wanted to come down uh, and that fell apart last year. Dave, what I found interesting on this was it was really the pandemic that these guys, there, there were some, you know, personality clashes. The pandemic got these guys together and got them talking again. It's kind of a cool story. It is. Uh, this is well, this is their story. And uh, we have to remember this could be something that would be uh, used as a nice cover to patch over some of the differences that they've had in the past. For those who have not followed this, uh, Dr. Finale and uh, Dr. Timothy Babineau, he is the head of uh, Lifespan, and Dr. Finale is also the head of, uh, of Care New England. Uh, they said that they had to work together, or they worked together through the pandemic, working cooperatively to t help the state get through all of this as we continue to try to get through all this. And they found that they actually liked working together. There had been sort of a clash of egos, as has been reported, and that's probably what ditched this, you know, a, a year or so ago. So I think their, their story is that they got together. And I think, frankly, the real reason here is they both are really struggling. Both hospitals are losing massive amounts of money. Uh, it probably only makes sense, uh, and I've said this before on other lively experiment programs, 
that it only makes sense for these two to get together. Now, the problem is that they're, and by the time this airs, their boards will probably have signed the intent to merger forms that they have to do. But then they've got to go through the whole process. The Department of Health has to approve this. The state attorney general has to approve this to be sure that they don't feel that there's any conflict of interest in terms of, uh, of monopoly, if you will, although it will be a monopoly no matter how you, how you word that. And then there's also the Federal Trade Commission, which also will have to take a look at this to see if, if this is something that it's going to end up being one behemoth uh, hospital system without much competition. Mm. Jim? Yeah, well, you know, I think this time it is going to happen. Okay, finally, we're going to see the merger. However, the devil's in the details. There's still a lot of financial matters that need to be worked out. You have the, what's going to be the name of this new entity, the board seats. How is that going to be merged together? Because you have two different boards. You have two different unions. Uh, they say that they're not going to touch the frontline workers, but what about the back office people? You know, well, how many jobs are going to be lost? So that's going to be a point of contention. Uh, and just the overall patient care, how is, how is that going to really be integrated along with Brown uh, with this new uh, medical center? So I think that uh, there's some more details to be done. I don't think you're going to see anything happening until next year uh, at the soonest. But I think it's a good thing for Rhode Island if they can pull it off. Donna? Yeah, I would just agree. I think coming out of the pandemic um, at this point, it would it would be a positive for Rhode Island to come out of the pandemic coming into 2021 and really get this finally resolved. I think um, healthcare um, and corporations that are healthcare systems have been transformed by this unbelievable period. Um, there's a backlog for so many people to just get basic healthcare and surgeries that were put off. We all know that's gone on for months and months. Um, and I think, you know, I think things have been transformed by this. And Rhode Island is facing a mountain of debt and a disintegrating small business sector. And those are, I know, you know, right now the governor has a lot on her plate and immediately it's to get kids in school. But, you know, Rhode Island has a very difficult road ahead and that's probably an understatement. And I think healthcare um, and, and Rhode Island with an exceedingly high elderly population and with all that has occurred this year, um, it's going to take real leadership and really at the top and say, let's make this deal happen. You do not want to have a continuing, almost deteriorating healthcare sector. Um, Rhode Island has got to step up, in my view, and this is a critical piece for Rhode Island's what's going to be a tough road of recovery. Dave, uh, just go ahead. If I could just add something to that. One of the concerns that I have is uh, this merger is going to be, uh, uh, this will make them the biggest employer in the state, if I'm not mistaken, 23,000 employees. Now, some of those employees may go away because of duplication of jobs, but for the most part, let's say 23,000. What if there is a strike? What happens if there's a strike? You don't have other major hospitals to go to. So that's a concern, and maybe this is one of the things that will be looked at. Maybe there will be some safeguards somehow or another in this agreement. But if you have labor strife, you could paralyze the entire health system. 
Dave, the question that I, the other question I had is, and I remember when Patrick Lynch got this so many years ago. I mean, you think of how long it's been since he was attorney general. Why, and you mentioned this in your opening comments, why would it not be a monopoly now when it, when it was, that was problematic back then? I think one of the things, part of it was they, they, they just drifted away. But one of the things the attorney general was looking at is there's no other game in town. So in 2020, that's okay. But maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't. Have you thought about that? I, I can't answer that. It's going to be a monopoly, no question about it. Uh, the other concern that I would have, uh, and it's not at a priority level as, as the things we're talking about, is what happens to the other hospitals in the area? Uh, what happens to South County, uh, Westerly Hospital? Uh, what about Fatima, uh, Roger Williams? Uh, these are smaller community-based hospitals, and I wonder what this competition is going to do to them. Uh, could it threaten their existence? Yeah, we will see. Flying under the radar, uh, there's been a lot going on with pandemics in schools. The governor has some important choices to make when it comes to filling court positions. The most high profile, of course, is the Supreme Court uh, seat being left by Justice and Dahlia. There are a bunch of candidates being interviewed now by the Judicial Nominating Commission. Then they will send three to five uh, candidates to the governor. Jim, I know you've been outspoken on this. Um, let's, so that's the process now. It's going to get to the governor this fall. Just tell me your thinking. I, uh, you've talked about this in the past. You think Judge Long would be appropriate. Some people have said, while they're both good candidates at the top, Senator Lynch and, uh, and Judge Long, what if Judge Long ultimately is not the strongest candidate? What's your argument to put her on the court? I feel that Judge Long is the strongest candidate, and that's why the NAACP, uh, Providence Branch supports her fully. Uh, she is on the Superior Court right now. Uh, Emin Lynch Prado, you know, I know she was a great senator. She did a great job at the Judiciary Committee, but she's not a judge at all. She's not even at a municipal court level. Also, with the Emin Lynch Prado, there's an ethics question that I guess the board voted to kind of waive the revolving door uh, law, which I felt was inappropriate. You know, she should have really had to wait a year after she left her Senate seat. So I think that you have a sitting Superior Court judge who's eminently qualified, and then you have other people that you know are qualified, but I think that in this case, where people are going through my community, you gotta wait, you gotta have people that are prepared, that are ready, whatever. But we have somebody on the Superior Court, okay, appointed by this governor. This governor knows her well. So I, I would be shocked if the governor does not appoint Melissa Long to the uh, Supreme Court. And I've had meetings with the governor to talk about this privately. So I'll be shocked if uh, uh, Melissa Long is not picked. From Jim Vincent's mouth to the governor's ear. Donna, what do you think? <laughs> um, I've been a little less following, um, you know, the, the judgeships in the state. Um, I would I would just say that um, I would echo Jim. I mean, I think uh, if someone is already a sitting judge versus a well-connected legislator, uh, who, of course, is a lawyer, um, that, you know, maybe the scale should tip toward uh, a sitting judge and they have a good record, um, you know, and I, I would just hope for all reasons of, you know, there's always been some ethical questions about, you know, th this process. I think um, it would be incumbent on the governor to, you know, just follow the right road and the best recommendations uh, at this point. Dave? Jim, just one Oh, I'm sorry, that. Jim, go ahead. You know, and plus, and I didn't want to start out with this, but I'll end with this. You know, she would be the first person of color to be on the Rhode Island Supreme Court, making history. 
Massachusetts has had not only blacks on the, on the Supreme Court, but they've had heads of the Supreme Court. And so has Connecticut, so has Minnesota. They have had black chiefs of the Supreme Court. We have never had a black, Hispanic, Native American, Southeast Asian on the Supreme Court. We have a sitting Superior Court judge picked by this governor, ready, willing, and able. And I think she'll be the next uh, Supreme Court justice making history in Rhode Island. And I think that that's gonna be a great day for all of us. Dave? Yeah, uh, I echo what Jim just said. I think it's time. Uh, you know, Rhode Island has, uh, uh, what, something like uh, seven or eight percent uh, African-American uh, population. And I think it's long past due. Uh, a state that its official name is the state of Rhode Island, Providence Plantations. I think it's about time the state of Rhode Island have a, a person of color on the Supreme Court. Uh, to me, this is long overdue. Uh, I think it would be something that, you know, I think this governor is very sensitive to things like that. I know she, her, she probably has a preference in this case, and it's probably not for long, but uh, my, my sense is I think it would be the right thing to do for the reasons that we've all agreed on here, that you have a great candidate. It would be a great gesture uh, that would be not just symbolic, but it would also be meaningful. Dave, let me stay with you. You had brought to my attention the whole situation with the census, and the president wants to end it a month early. Uh, Rhode Island's right in the middle of the pack. We're 24th uh, in terms of response rate. Just about a little under two-thirds of the population has responded, but there was an awful lot at stake here, not only money, but a potential congressional seat, and it feels like the clock's ticking, only a matter of three weeks left with huge stakes involved. You know, Jim, a lot of people don't realize this, but when we talk about the state budget being $10 billion a year, uh, we don't realize, most of us don't realize that almost a third of that, or actually almost 40% of that money comes from the federal government. That's a $3.8 billion that comes into our budget each year is based, guess what, on the census. If you don't have good census reporting showing how many people you have and, and, and the demographics and so on, if you don't have that, you run the risk of losing the money. And some people that I've spoken with said that could amount to as much as 20 to $30 million a year for 10 years. This is not just a one-time hit. Wow. This is a period of 10 years. And of course, the other aspect of this is you could end up losing a congressional seat, which is one of the biggest concerns. We have very little power in Congress to speak of because we don't, we're a small state, just like Delaware. Compare that, for example, to California. California has 53 congressional representatives. We have two. Their delegation is like 55 counting the senators. We have four. So we don't have a whole lot of clout. The last thing we want to do is lose one of our congressional seats to Arizona or some of the other states that have shown growing population. So my advice to everybody, and frankly, I would love to see the three local television stations do a half hour special between now and September 30th, because that's the deadline. If we don't get people uh, you know, following up, by the way, you're required to fill out the census form. You are required under the law to do that. It's in our best interest economically, politically, and so forth, to be fully registered because we don't want to lose any of that money and we don't want to lose a congressional seat. Yeah, Jim, Mayor Diosa was very upset, particularly in Central Falls, that the, the president wanted to um, shorten the time period by a month because a lot of people underrepresented uh, from his community and certainly others. Yeah, that, um, that upsets me as well. Uh, the chosen one in his infinite wisdom is now shortening the process by a month. So we have until the end of September uh, to uh, complete the process where it originally was at the end of October 
And interestingly enough, the Census Bureau actually wanted to extend it to April because of the pandemic, his own Census Bureau, but now it's gonna be a, you know, shortened to like the end of September. This is gonna hurt states that have diverse populations that are, have hard, hard to count populations. We're getting caught up in this. So we, we get about $3.8 billion. More important than even losing that congressional seat, and that's important, is the amount of money that Rhode Islanders are going to lose. All Rhode Islanders, we're all in the same boat when it comes to federal funding. So the president is trying to uh, not count undocumented people, which is against the law. We've always counted every person since 1790, even counting slaves. So that's clearly against the law. So, you know, he's at it again. It's going to hurt. We need more time to count these hard-to-count communities. And I think that Rhode Island is going to get caught up in the, in the mix here. And we're, not, we're going to come up on the short end. Donnie, you want the last word on that? Yeah, just really quick. I mean, I think, though, you have a larger issue here. Um, it's in, in all due respect, Dave, and I, I get it about a public awareness campaign and the pandemic interfered. But I think you have a larger issue, you guys. You know, losing a, a congressional seat is also based on diminishing population. And if Rhode Island does not know how to go down a road where they're not just going to be dependent on federal government handouts coming out of the pandemic, I realize that you know, the immediate aid is vital, but Rhode Island is losing population. And if things don't change, you know what, they're going to continue to lose population. That's how you lose a house seat, by the way, bigger than a public awareness campaign that didn't come off the right way. So I think there's a larger down the road problem for the state. People are going to keep fleeing a state like Rhode Island. Um, and especially with the collapse of what's happened with the economy, which was not the you know, the prop was not the fault of Romando or anyone in the state. But I think that going forward, and we talk about progressive politics and their policy ideas, you know, if you're going to have people go backwards on tax policy and tax rates, you will certainly lose a seat, whether you do a good census response or not. Well, All right. I, if, I, if I could just add to that. Jim. Yeah, just quickly, Dave, we've got to get to outrageous. Yeah, uh, I think you, you make good points. This is not trying to jigger the numbers this is trying to get the people who are here to you know file their census form so we get credit this is about getting credit for who we are and what we are regardless of our deficiencies on population this is about being counted for who is really here and that's the responsibility of every individual who gets a census form all right folks i hope to shorten you on this about 30 seconds each if you can keep it tight jim do you have an outrage or a kudo I have an outrage, and uh, actually, uh, Dr. Pablo Rodriguez, who was your guest last week, and I share the same outrage, and that's the president, uh, his honor, the president, getting rid of anti-racist training, implicit bias training. Uh, he's called it divisive, un-American, a sickness. You know, I do diversity training in terms of my agency, and it's anything but that. Everybody has implicit bias, and there's nothing wrong with admitting that. And to call this training un-American or a sickness, I think, really mischaracterizes what the training is all about, and it's an outrage, and it really speaks to you know his uh, his take on 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 racism in this country. Uh, he needs to understand that if we don't start somewhere, let's say with the federal workers, which work for him, then we're never going to get out of this conundrum that we're in in terms of social justice. So I think that him uh, getting rid of anti-racist training, calling it divisive, un-American, and a sickness, I think he's describing himself and not the train. All right, Donna, thirty seconds. My outrage is the treatment by Northeastern University against 11 freshmen 
who recently, uh, you know, they violated protocol. They were, this was widely reported, and they were not necessarily having a party. The college had used the Weston Hotel in Boston because they don't have enough dorm space. They put freshmen there, and 11 of them gathered in a room. No one's saying they were having a frat party. And the university, which I think is a very duplicitous um, strategy in what they deployed, they immediately, without really deliberating this, without giving the students a chance to explain themselves, I think they did an over-the-top overreaction. They've been essentially banished. Uh, they can't even do online courses. They were sent home like they're criminals. And worse, the university said they're keeping their $35,000 just semester prepaid tuition payment. So, gee, that amounts to $400,000 for Northeastern for a freshman mistake. I think it's awful. Donna, I got to hold you there. And Dave, I owe you one. You get two outrages next time. I'm sorry. It's the vagaries of television, which you know so well. Folks, I am sorry. It's a quick 30 uh, minutes. Uh, Jim, Dave, and Donna, thank you. And join us back here next week as a lively experiment continues. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by for more than 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of important political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to support this great program in Rhode Island PBS.